Good morning, everybody. I'm sure you're as excited as I am to be starting a new book today. We'll uh, be uh, looking at the book of Colossians. Colossians. So uh, please find that book. I think it's right before First Thessalonians. So it's a kind of a backward turn from where we were for the last uh, couple of months. So Colossians, we'll just start by reading the first eight verses of the book. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. I have a, maybe a picture here. Uh, we, uh, as a family, often take long trips, and uh, it helps to pass the time to listen to uh, books on tapes. We were listening to a series called uh, Story Hours, which uh, tends to give stories that are often associated uh, with the Bible. Not always. This one actually wasn't uh, obviously related to the Bible. It was about a man call, called uh, Louis Pasteur. I probably mispronounced his name. But uh, he was a famous scientist, and uh, he is the one who more or less came up with the ideas of what's happening behind, behind us here which is not so comfortable for the child, but uh, it's uh, called inoculation. Very, very valuable. Uh, it used to be people would die left and right from diseases. And what this man discovered is that if you give a person a small dose of the same germ or virus that caused the disease in a weakened state, uh, it doesn't make you sick. And your body has a, an amazing defense system uh, that will actually recognize the virus in its weakened state and will learn how to deal with it. And then if you're exposed to the real thing later on, to a potent germ or virus, your body will know what to do with it. And so you don't really get sick. So why am I telling this story? The book we're studying is a lot like it. The book of Colossians is, in a sense, like an inoculation against false doctrine. Now, some books uh, in the New Testament, you can tell that the church has already been infested with the uh, false teaching. Uh, for example, uh, the letter to the Galatians. And Paul is writing to them with great concern that these people may not be saved, uh, you know, somewhere in between, and not always clear where they are. That's not the case in the book of Colossians, 
They're saved, and Paul uh, is not dealing with an emergency, but he sees the danger coming. He's recognizing that the false teaching is beginning to infiltrate, and he's giving them what we might call a shot in the arm here with the book of Colossians that uh, will help them deal with the problem as it's emerging in their midst. Okay? So... Uh, just to, to see it in the book, you could turn to uh, Colossians 2, 16 through 19, or you can look at the screen behind me. So this is a little bit later on. This is kind of a view of what's coming in a few weeks, but uh, shows us the problem that they're dealing with, that Paul is concerned about. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He's speaking here of laws regarding what you can and cannot eat, which were part of Judaism, and also laws regarding uh, celebrating certain holidays, uh, like the Sabbath. And um, he's saying these were a shadow of things to come, meaning, yes, God did give these laws in the Old Testament, but the substance is of Christ. But we had these false teachers coming in, and they were starting to say, no, 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 you can't, you can't eat this, and you can't eat that, and you have to celebrate you know, this holiday, and you can't work on the Sabbath. And they were starting to add all these laws, which today we would recognize as legalism, right? that was being encroached here upon the, the Colossians. Um, okay, verse 18, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows, grows with the increase that is from God. So there seems to be this fascination with angelic beings. This is likely a part of the Gnostic teachings, and uh, they esteemed Jesus as, a, as an angelic being, but they said he's not the only one. There's other angelic beings, and you need to worship them, or you need to get what you need from, from where you come. It kind of reminds me of how in Catholicism there's the saints, and there's all these other beings you need to be praying for if you want to make sure that you know, you're kosher and everything is going to go well for you. And they were, what Paul was saying is they were letting go, they were not holding fast to the head, and that's Christ. So there's a de-emphasis of who Jesus is and bringing into the picture some other spiritual beings that were not going to help the Colossians. And again, Paul is seeing it and is going to deal with it um, as we get into the book. But that's the kind of dangers that they were dealing with. They were bringing in legalism, they were bringing in you know, other spiritual beings, and they were letting go of Christ. And we'll see as we go through Colossians that there's going to be a strong emphasis of who Jesus is and how central Jesus is to Christianity as Paul is dealing with these uh, false teachings. Okay, uh, just really quick as we start a new letter, it's always good to know who's writing it. Who's writing the letter? Paul, right? It says uh, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And that's good if you're going to get a shot in the arm from somebody. You want to make sure they're qualified to give you a shot in the arm. And uh, Paul was qualified. He was an apostle, which means he has personally seen the Lord Jesus. And he received directly from the Lord Jesus 
uh, the teachings of the gospel which he was to impart to others. So when we receive something from Paul, we're receiving something from the Lord Jesus himself. Now it's interesting, I asked you who wrote it, you all said Paul. I didn't hear anybody say Timothy. Well, Paul is giving here equal credit to Timothy, right? He's saying it's Paul and it's Timothy that are writing. Now we, uh, I used to, to, uh, to go to college and in college I was involved in writing uh, scientific publications and it's always kind of a big deal of whose name goes on the paper, right? Because, you know, you want your name to be there because it gives you some measure of credit. And if you have this long list of names, it's possible no one will see your name in there. So usually, the fewer authors there are, if your name is still there, the better. So you would think, you know, why is Paul including Timothy here? And uh, one of the things it shows to me is that uh, Paul recognized he couldn't do the job by himself. Right? I mean, yes, he was an apostle, but... He needed someone to help him, like Timothy. And he brought Timothy along to help him in all the ministries he was involved with, as he was in this letter. Also, Paul was thinking of the next generation. He knew he wasn't going to live forever, and somebody else needed to be brought up in the teaching that could carry the ministry. So just an encouragement here. You know, serving uh, God is not a, what do you call a one-man team. Uh, it's always teamwork. It's always teamwork. Every person has a role in the kingdom of God, of serving God, ministering the gospel. Okay, who is the letter written to? It's uh, written to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Where is Colossae? I have a map up here. Most of you have probably seen something like this at the back of your Bible. It shows the uh, missionary journeys of Paul, so you kind of have a picture there of the Middle East, and you see the kind of path he took as he went along his missionary journeys. And so you would look around and you'd say, okay, where is Colossae here? And finally you'd find that it. It's right above the word Lycia over there, there's Colossae. And the interesting thing is you see Paul never went through Colossae. And uh, why is that important? Well, it shows how important it was to, for Paul to write this letter uh, for them, and we actually have that reference in Colossians 2.1. He says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. So Paul has a concern for people who haven't known him, haven't heard him speak, haven't uh, received teaching directly from him, that maybe they don't have everything that they need. And that's why he sees the need of a uh, sending this inoculation to Colossae remotely. They need to receive this uh, help that he has for them. Okay. Um, all right, so we're going to start with, uh, with the shots now. now I'm, the wonderful thing is the booster shots in the Bible don't hurt. <laughs> so we'll try to keep it as uh, pain-free as possible. So the first shot, and really the main one, in this uh, passage, uh, and, and it's difficult uh, sometimes to, to see it because we have one sentence from verse 3 to verse 8. So you have to kind of, as you're going along, kind of see how everything fits together. He starts in verse 3 in giving thanks to God, but you don't find out what it is he's giving thanks to God until you get to verse 5, right? Uh, he's, he's giving thanks to, the, to God. He's uh, praying for them. 
since he heard of the faith in Christ Jesus, that is how they became saved, right? They became saved by faith. They, when they believed in Christ, they got saved. Uh, and of your love for all the saints, well, that was the evidence they really got saved. Right? That's a, Jesus says that would be the mark of those who followed him. By this will, you know, men know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see love for the saints, then you know somebody is really saved. <clears throat> because of the hope which is laid for you in heaven. So that's why he gave thanks to God. He's giving thanks to God because of the hope which is laid for the believers in heaven. And, and what he's doing here uh, in this first booster shot is he's drawing their mind back to the hope that they have in Christ as a way of, of encouraging. Do, do we have a hope in Christ? What, what is our hope in Christ? We will be with him. Very good. And... Uh, and what Paul is doing here is doing the same thing Jesus did uh, in uh, John 14, 1. Jesus is dealing here with the disciples. They're about to go through some rough waters themselves. That's a good reminding here. As, this is not just a, a booster shot for you to help you with, uh, against false teaching. This is, this is something to help you with everything. Imagine if you can go to the doctor and they give you a booster shot. And it just, it's not just for, you know... Uh, measles. It's not, you know, just for uh, uh, the flu, but one shot takes care of everything, right? Would you go to the doctor for that? I, I usually don't go for the, boost, for the flu shots because I, I'm not sure it's worth it, right? I'm, I'm afraid of needles. But if you give me one shot and you take care of everything, all right, I'll take that. So this really is a shot that helps with everything. And uh, so Jesus, as he as he knows his disciples are about to go through some very rough waters, they, uh, they had Jesus with them for three years, and now Jesus will be taken away. He'll be taken from them by force. He'll be uh, crucified. He will be dead. He'll be gone for three days. And Jesus wants to help them during this period of time that they'll be going through these very rough waters. And so he, this is what he says to them. John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is true, brothers and sisters. One day you will be with Jesus. And uh, that's the encouragement that Paul wanted the believers in Colossae to have. And Paul knows that this encouragement works because he's experienced himself in his own life. Uh, if you have your Bible, or you can read behind me, uh, you can turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. We'll cover a bunch of verses, and I don't have time to go into detail interpretation here. So just try to catch the spirit of it. This is Paul, and he's, he's speaking here about the difficult life that he was going through as an apostle. Being an apostle of the Lord Jesus was not a bed of roses. Right? He was going through some tough time. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 8. We are hard-pressed 
on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And he's talking there about the, the afflictions of being an apostle. He was suffering. He was being persecuted for telling people about the, the hope that they can have in heaven. Why, Paul? Why are you so encouraged? How is it that you're not crushed? How is it that you're not in despair? How is it that you're not forsaken? How is it that you're not destroyed? Verse 13, And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace having spread through the many may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul had his eyes focused on the hope that was before him. He knew he was going to be with Jesus. And that Jesus was going to reward him for everything he's done for him. All the suffering that he suffered. And to him he says, this is a light affliction. It doesn't bother me that much. Because I have my eyes so set on that hope I have in glory. So that delivered Paul from his affliction. And he's trying to pass that on to the Colossians as well. Fix your mind on that hope that we have. And that will carry you through the difficult days you have coming ahead which would be through this false teaching. The author of Hebrews calls hope an anchor for the soul. He says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. You have a picture there of the boat. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, I know not, too many of us are taking boats these days. But uh, if you have uh, out on a boat and you're sailing, at some point usually it gets dark. You don't want to go. You can't see in the dark. Now, today we have radar and all these other systems. But it used to be, you know, you'd park for the night. You know, you throw your anchor over, and the anchor will, you know, be heavy enough. It'll catch a rock or be sitting on the bottom, and it'll keep your boat from drifting, right? And... Uh, <coughs> That is what this hope is supposed to do for us in the storms of life. If we have our anchor within the veil that is in the presence of God, then, you know, yes, the wind might blow me this way and that, but it's not going to crush my boat, right? It can't destroy me because I'm anchored in. 
I'm, in a, I'm, I'm connected in a safe place. My boat won't sink because I have this anchor that's keeping it uh, safe. Um, this was uh, undoubtedly the inspiration for a hymn we sometimes sing. I was going to read it for you by Priscilla J. Owens, a Sunday school teacher. It's amazing to me how many hymns were written by Sunday school teachers. This obviously was one who was more familiar with uh, shipping than we are today, uh, but I enjoyed these uh, verses. I thought you would too. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm, firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. It is safely moored, twill the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand, and the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy that blast through strength divine. It will surely hold in the straits of fear when the breakers have told that the reef is near. Though the tempest rave and the wild winds blow, not an angry wave shall our bark overflow. It will firmly hold in the floods of death when the waters cold chill our latest breath. On the rising tide it can never fail while our hopes abide within the veil. When our eyes behold through the gathering night the city of gold, our harbor bright, we shall anchor fast by the heavenly shore with the storms all past forevermore. Okay, it's time for your uh, second booster shot now. Uh, the first one was a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. The second one is, is really just a booster shot because it's designed to just encourage them in what he just told them. It's really about the assurance uh, that, that this, they can trust in that hope, that this is a reality that they can expect uh, before them. And uh, this booster shot has a bunch of different ingredients. I, I counted at least six, and I'll try to go get through them in the time we have. Uh, the first one is that God and his message do not change with time. Paul is saying this. Verse 5, he said, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, and then he says, Of which you heard before. Right? They heard it before, and the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? So it doesn't change. He made the promise. It's still good, and it will be good Forever. Now, it's interesting to me, I never noticed the context of that verse in Hebrews 13. It's actually about false teaching. Verse 9 continues, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods 
which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So there's definitely a reference here to false teachers and the new teachings that they bring along. And, and the author of the Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. What you heard at first holds, okay? It doesn't change. Jesus doesn't change. Uh, the second ingredient we have here, and again, all these are all designed, if you will, to assure them of the hope that they have. Right? It's, all these, it's almost like a, a, all these extra cables that are connected to that uh, anchor that's, that's keeping you held in there. And the second one I have is uh, the witness account. Now, Paul is saying it here this way. He's saying, uh, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. What Paul is saying here is these things that we're telling you are true. And uh, we have a, a similar thought in 1 Corinthians 15. And what, what, what we have here is a witness account. The gospel isn't an idea that somebody had. You know, wouldn't it be wonderful if God would just forgive our sins and uh, somebody else will pay for our sins? Well, that sounds good to me. Does it sound good to you? Right, let's believe in that. No, there's an historical event that happened that you can look back to that proves the fact that there is a hope that is laid before us. And that uh, historical event, as I said, is in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and it is the gospel. The gospel is an historical account. Something happened that gives us grounds to trust in the hope that is laid before us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. So he's talking here about the gospel, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. So this is the gospel. And it's, you know, greater simplicity that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scripture. What is the gospel? Jesus died and he said he was dying for our sins. The scripture says that he was dying for our sins. The apostles later testified he was dying for our sins. But the gospel fact is that he died. And he was so dead that they put him in the ground and he was buried for three days, completely and utterly dead, no doubt about it. And then three days later, he comes back from the dead. Right? And he appears to witnesses. That is the gospel testimony. He died for our sins and he rose again. And you know what? People saw him. You know, it wasn't like a story that they made up. There were witnesses. Now, we may not make a lot of it, but this is how truth gets established in a court of law. You go to a court of law, a person is accused or not accused of something, they'll call witnesses to testify. Did you see him do it? Yes, I did. Guilty. Right? That's how we establish whether something is true or not. We bring witnesses and they establish the truth. Now, you know, if you just have one witness, you're not as sure about it. Well, you say you saw him, then you bring another witness, he'll tell you another story, and then you're kind of in trouble, right? You don't really know what to, what to try, what to trust in. 
But in the case of Jesus, it wasn't one person. It wasn't two persons. It, was, it says here over 500 people. You know, Tom, if you were in a court of law and you had to make a decision, was this, you know, did, did this person hit the other car, you know, or didn't he? The car that was, the way, by the way, stopped at the red light. And people start coming and say, yeah, I, I saw. The car was parked and, and he hit it. And another witness comes. And around witness 500, you believe it really happened. Right? I mean, there were plenty of witnesses. And if you, uh, you know, if that's not enough for you, these were people who didn't just say it, they were willing to give up their lives for it. Right? I mean, it's not like the apostles were padding their money. If they went around and preached the gospel and then said, by the way, Jesus wants you to give us some money, and they, you know, after 20 years of the richest people on the face of the earth, you'd wonder, well, maybe there's a scheme going on. Right? But it wasn't. I mean, these are people who were persecuted. Paul is writing this letter from jail for preaching the gospel. He doesn't have a reason to tell it unless it was true. Right. All right, so the first, thing, first assurance we had was God doesn't change. Second one, we have a witness account. Third one, we have, as I understand, they say material evidence. Is that correct? That's what they use in the court of law, material evidence. So there's a couple here. The first one, it says, uh, which has come to you as it has also in all the world. The gospel has come into all the world. Now, start with this. We're in a backwater province in, Rome, in, in, the, in the empire of Rome. Right? And you have 11 guys who are huddled in fear. They just lock themselves in an upper room because they're master has just been crucified and they're afraid they're going to get a knock on the door and they're going to be the next one on a cross. All right? And yet, some years later, Paul is able to write that this message has gone out throughout all the world. How is that possible? They were hiding in a room, weren't they? You know, how, how, how is it that these guys have turned the world upside down in one generation? There's only one explanation. Jesus said this. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them after he rose from the dead, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. It wasn't just that they have seen the risen Christ, which would be reason enough to go boldly. Uh, it wasn't enough that Jesus gave them the command to go, which is also, would be a strong encouragement, but Jesus was with them. And that's how the message spread. Uh, how many people here have heard of uh, the country of... Uh, Vanuatu. The one person there, right? That's impressive. I didn't hear of that name of that country until um, until a week ago. Can you show the picture of the cyclone? Uh, the reason I heard about it is there was a, a big cyclone. That's the equivalent of hurricanes in the Pacific. And I understand this one was a you know historic magnitude. If there was a Category Six, this would have been a Category Six storm. 
And I hit that small island called Vanuatu. Actually, I guess it's a bunch of islands. And uh, what you know, caught my attention is that as I was reading the article, it says that a lot of the people survived the storm by uh, hiding uh, in churches. And I was thinking, wow, you know, if you show the next map, I mean, where is Vanuatu comparing to where the gospel started? So the gospel started in Israel, which is actually so small you can't even see it on that map. But, uh, you know, we talk about spreading to the end of the earth, right? So first of all, there's one end of the earth. You know what's on this end of the earth? We are, right? We're actually at the end of the earth, okay? As far as, as, far as what Jesus was talking to his disciples. It's hard to get much farther than we are. If you go to the other direction, you know, you'd somehow make your way through Asia there, and, you know, you'd come down into uh, Southeast Asia, and you'd have to pass all these, those islands. Uh, and in Vanuatu, is you know, right over here, you know, <laughs> beyond Australia. That's how far the gospel traveled. How is that possible? Eleven guys locked up in a room, and yet now the gospel covers the earth. Material evidence number one. Material evidence number two. <clears throat> Paul is saying, which has come to you, the gospel has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The gospel brings fruit. Now, you could look at it in two ways. You could say fruit, well, that's someone who believes the Gospels and becomes saved. And that is true. I mean, that is a fruit for the kingdom of God. There's a new child of God. But uh, <clears throat> the Gospel, when somebody gets saved, their life changes. Right? And that's what we call the fruits of the Spirit. God takes away uh, the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh. Right? That was the evidence in the lives of the Colossians, they started loving one another. A lot of people have heard of uh, George Mueller. He was famous for, uh, for starting, uh, if you would, a charity organization. He, was, uh, he did two things. He sent the gospel to foreign lands, and he also took care of orphans. Right? He, he gave himself and everything he had to raise up children. And uh, what most people don't know about George Mueller is that he used to be a thief, his uh, father was a tax collector, and George Mueller used to collect from his father's desk money that didn't belong to him. And uh, he continued that way as he grew up. His father was, you know, pulling his hair out and trying these different things. And George Mueller ended up uh, going from town to town, claiming to be rich, staying in hotels, and then leaving without paying his bills until he ended up in jail for doing that. And by the grace of God, Mueller heard the gospel and was saved. And his life completely turned around. So now we don't even remember what he used to do. The power of the gospel. Jesus says this, or Paul said this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Perhaps you know somebody who was saved. And you've seen their life change. How is it that their lives change? Where does this power come from that changes lives? From Christ, right? That's material evidence number two. All right. Uh, 
the next evidence we have for the gospel, this is number five as I'm counting, is what I would call internal evidence. Paul said that uh, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. The gospel is a message of grace. And now why is that internal, internal evidence? As far as I know, old world religions say that there is something I need to do to improve myself, to make myself good enough if I want to go to heaven. Right? Sounds familiar? Right? That's, that's what most of us are raised with. Catholicism, rabbinical Judaism, uh, in my case. We're supposed to do something that makes us better so that we're good enough to go to the kingdom of God. Now, the gospel is completely different. It says, you don't deserve to go to heaven. Right? You don't deserve it. So <laughs> if you never heard that before, let me tell you, you don't deserve to go to heaven. And more than that, there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn your way there. You can't even make yourself good enough to go to heaven. But you know what? God loved you so much that he provided his son as a substitute for you. He came into this world, and he died on a cross, and as he died on the cross, your sins were laid upon him, and he paid for them in full. And now all you have to do is receive that free gift, and then you can go to heaven and be with him forever. Right? That's a God. It's a message of grace. Now, what part did I do to deserve to be in heaven? I didn't do anything. Who gets the glory for my salvation? Right, Jesus does. Now, in all other world religion, who gets the glory for going to heaven? It's I do, right? Because there was something I did to make myself good enough. So the gospel stands out alone in old world religions where God gets the glory and not man. That's what I call inter internal evidence that the gospel really is from God, that the gospel really is true. Now, there's another way of looking at it. Many people will, will listen to that, and they'll say, ah, that's too good to be true. Right? I mean, I'm sorry, you're saying Jesus did it all. I don't have to do anything. I just need to believe in him, and I get to go to heaven. That's too good. Too good to be true. I can't believe something like that. Right? Well, I like the way somebody once put it. He says, well, it's too good not to be true. Right? And what, what he, he meant by that is that a human mind would never think of that. We would never think that God would love us so much that even though we're completely undeserving and can't do anything to save ourselves, God will do all the work and then gives it freely to us if we would just believe in it. Would never come across a human thought, that idea that that's possible which means it originated in somebody else's head, right? That's what uh, Isaiah says. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The very nature of the gospel message says that it has originated in a heavenly mind, not in a human mind. Mind. All right, last number six, as evidences that uh, Paul is uh, alluding to here, verse seven, as you also learn from Epaphras. And what Paul is, uh, is talking here is about the man who brought the gospel to the Colossians. Right? Epaphras, 
been speculated, was probably saved in Ephesus. Ephesus is pretty close to uh, Colossae, and Paul was there for a long time, and many people got saved during that time. So he probably went back to Colossae after he got saved. That was probably his hometown, and he shared the gospel with them, right? And they believed. Now, there's a, a phrase that's used in uh, military terms, I believe, called feet on the ground. Feet on the ground. Uh, we're right now involved in a war against ISIS. You've probably heard about them. They're an Islamic state uh, in what? In Syria. Okay, ISIS, Islamic state in Syria. And it doesn't seem like there's much progress, right? I mean, we're sending planes, they're bombing them. Our planes go back to base. We're sending planes, they're bombing. We've been doing it for, I don't know, two, three months now? Officially, and who knows how long before that, maybe unofficially. And there doesn't seem to be much progress. Why not? Feet on the ground. There's no feet on the ground, right? I mean, we're just sending in planes, we're bombing them. You know, they duck. <laughs> Plane passes, they get out of the hole, and they continue doing whatever they want to do. There's no feet on the ground. And uh, what Paul is pointing here to uh, Epaphras for is Epaphras was the feet on the ground for the gospel in Colossae. He was the person who actually went in, and they got to interact with him. Now, uh, the gospel is in the Word of God, and some people may just open up the Bible, and they'll read it, and be convinced by it, and become saved. It's possible, but it's extremely rare. 99.99% of the time, you're saved because you know a Christian. There's somebody you know, somebody you met, a friend, a family, a member, someone who you interacted with. And you could see the reality of Christ in their life. And that's what caused you to eventually believe the gospel message. And uh, that was Colossus. So, sorry, that was Epaphos. So Paul appeals to Epaphos, the, the personal experience that the Colossians had with him as evidence that the gospel is true. And I'm sure each one of you could think of the persons or group of persons you interacted with and how interacting with them showed you that there was truth in what they were saying. And that brought you to believe. So that was the, the sixth <coughs> ingredient, if you would, for booster shot number two. Very quick, booster shot number three here. Um, and uh, I call this uh, backing up or strengthening or pointing the Colossians to the uh, local godly leadership. And what we see here in verse 7 and 8 is Paul is, is kind of building up or backing up Epaphras. He said, as you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Very important when it comes to the issue of false teaching, false doctrine, to know that God has actually set people in place that are are designed by God to protect you from this false teaching, okay? That's, God knew this danger would happen, and he's preparing us, prepared us for it. In Acts 20, verse 28, it says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And this is Paul, by the way, speaking to the Ephesians elders, just a very short distance from Colossae upon which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's telling the elders, the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Their, their job is to shepherd the believers. Um, 
which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So, <clears throat> Paul knew there was going to be this danger. God knew there was going to be this danger of false teaching. And he, he put in place elders, people whose responsibility it was to protect uh, the believers from such attack. I remember when I was a fairly new believer um, at Calvary Bible Chapel, probably the first year I was there. I know it was the old uh, school on, uh, what road was it? School Road? Dayton. And uh, a man came in, seemed like a nice guy, and, uh, you know, started talking about, about uh, what he believed in. And uh, the elders came by and, and talked to him and found out that here was a person who didn't recognize the elders' authority and wanted to teach the believers whatever he wanted to teach them. And uh, they showed him the door and said, not here. Thank you very much. He went to another church. And before that local leadership, you know, uh, took an action, several people left the church and followed him, just like it says here, seeking followers after themselves. And God set up, and we can praise God for godly elders here who are discerning and are willing to show the door to somebody who comes and teach things other than the truth. Okay. <clears throat> Applications. If you have not yet believed the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, you have not yet put your faith in him to save you from your sins and have a place for you in heaven to be with him for all of eternity. Why? Right? I mean, there's all this evidence <laughs> that we have here. Right? I mean, there's the witness evidence, there's material evidence, there's personal evidence, no doubt you've been exposed to. Why not believe? And if you think you have a good reason, I'm happy to listen to you after the message. <laughs> Let me know what it is. If you, have a, you are a believer here, I think we can look at the Epaphras as an example of uh, feet on the ground. I mean, the gospel is true. Jesus died on the cross. And it is contained in the Word of God. But God is looking for feet on the ground that are willing to take that message and share it with others. And it doesn't have to be in a foreign country as a missionary. It can be right here in, uh, in California, in Fremont, wherever it is the Lord takes you. People at work, people at your family, uh, neighbors. You could bring the gospel to them. And I, I want to leave you with this. This is a hymn. <clears throat> that was the favorite of Grace McCall. I know some of you here probably remember her. She was a saintly old woman when I met her. I'm sure she was a saintly young woman before I met her. Uh, but she really had a heart for, uh, for the mission field, for the gospel. And this was her favorite hymn. It's called uh, Tell It Again, unsurprisingly, written by another uh, Sunday school teacher named uh, Mary B. Slade. She writes, Into the tent where a gypsy boy lay, dying alone at the close of the day, news of salvation we carried, said he. Nobody ever has told it to me. Tell it again, tell it again. Salvation story repeat o'er and o'er. 
Still none can say of the children of men, nobody ever has told me before. Did he so love me, a poor little boy? Send unto me the good tidings of joy? Need I not perish? My hand will he hold? Nobody ever the story has told. Bending, we caught the last words of his breath, just as he entered the valley of death. God sent his son. Whosoever, said he, then I am sure that he sent him for me. Smiling, he said, as his last sigh he spent, I am so glad that for me he was sent. Whispered while low sunk the sun in the west, Lord, I believe, tell it now to the rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you that according to your word, you are preparing for us a place in heaven and uh, promise that uh, if you prepare for us a place in heaven, you will also come again and receive us to yourself. We thank you that we have a hope that uh, goes uh, inside the veil, which is uh, sure and steadfast. And we uh, pray for ourselves and for everybody here who is going through the storms of life or will assuredly pass through the storm of life, that you might help us indeed fix our hope so in you that uh, our vessel will not be uh, overly disturbed, damaged by the storms of life, that we will be able to continue serving you, Lord, and trusting in you whatever may come. We think here of anyone who may not know you, who has not yet put their faith in you. And uh, we pray that that person will seek to know for themselves the truth. Is it true that Jesus Christ died for me and rose from the dead? That they will put their trust in you too. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.